Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is for all my listeners with a vagina. Let's not let your lost phone become a couple's existential crisis, okay? I'm saving myself by DeAndre-fying my apartment and my life. Welcome to And Just Like That, The Writer's Room, Season 2, the official companion podcast for the Max Original And Just Like That. I'm Michael Patrick King, writer, executive producer, director of And Just Like That. And joining me today is... Julie Rottenberg. Hi. Writer, executive producer. And director. I am Elisa Zaritsky. Writer, executive producer. I'm Susan Fales-Hill. Writer, consulting producer. We're thrilled to be here again today to talk about the second episode in season two, which is called The Real Deal. In this episode, we start to really move on and figure out what's real. It's called The Real Deal because really what the episode is about is what's real in these relationships they're going through, what's really important to you, and what's the real truth of growing in every aspect, whether it be in a relationship, in a family, your children growing, etc. And spoiler alert, <laughs> if you haven't seen this episode, you might want to stop listening to us right now. Please come back after you've watched the second episode, because the first thing we sort of talked about in the writing room is what do we do with the podcast? Do we want to continue it? It was an interesting idea in the first episode because it was the way we introduced Che and Carrie together and Jackie. And now we have Franklin and Carrie doing a show. And it is called Sex in the City. Dangerously enough for us, it's called Sex in the City. And that was fun to actually have Carrie at the end of the first last season look into the camera and say, I'm Carrie Bradshaw, and this is Sex in the City. And now what? One of the criticisms we got from podcasters, all you podcast people, is that <laughs> podcasts don't get call-in shows. They don't get call-in. And there are a couple I could... Sight. Chase it. But then we started looking around, like, how would Carrie talk to people? And I know Sarah Silverman's podcast used to do voicemails. And so that is where I landed on the prototype of this episode called The Real Deal, which was written by me, Michael Patrick King, and Susan Fails-Hill to my right. So do we want to do the podcast, right? That was the first question. Do we want to keep doing this? And what does it give us? We knew we wanted to get into the messy situation of dating someone, or shall we say, sleeping with someone who you're working with for Carrie and Franklin. But we we also didn't want to overstay our welcome. And so we knew we wanted to be in there just enough for it to get sticky and the joy of having Chloe show up. We knew we wanted... Um, Allie Stroker to come back. But what, Lisa, what does overstaying our welcome mean that Julie just mentioned regarding the podcast? I think what I would say is staying, what is the podcast giving us, you know? And on the one hand, it was a nice way for, to get inside Carrie's head, especially in the finale episode where she 
talks about life and sort of sums up the season in the way that she would have done with her column. The season one finale. The season one finale. We're always looking for organic story engines that sort of tell us where we should go with the characters. And I feel like with the podcast, it was kind of a question of where else it was going to take us. And it, for me, it felt very wrapped up in Franklin. It, it perfectly knit to the relationship of Franklin. And if that relationship wasn't going to necessarily have legs and become love and everything else that comes with love, then in a similar way, the podcast was kind of maybe a moment and not her life. Did it was something that she tried. Yeah, you know? and had she outlived Sex and the City, and also you had lost, we had lost Che and Jackie in that universe. So other than the vehicle of, of her being Dear Abby to the callers, what purpose did but it But you serve? just said the most exciting thing about it to me is that one line, and we even talked about it after it was written, should we cut it, should we keep it, which is in the real deal at the end of the episode, Carrie says to Charlotte, uh, I'm trying to hold on to Sex in the City and I don't even know if it fits me anymore. That was a very scary line. I love it. And I I believe I You were there. You I were there. Want it. I was definitely um I wanted it. it gone. I wanted Lisa. I wanted him to I, I loved wanted it Michael because to cut it. I thought it was a very dangerous question. Question and it was exciting to me to say has Carrie is she trying to hold on to Sex in the City and is and just like that us trying to hold on to Sex in the City that duality that people could write think pieces about or bitchy things on you Twitter you want to say the scary thing I yes. want to say the scary dare thing the world and dare people to, to say you're AARP yes. Sex in the City <laughs> right you have right overstayed <laughs> your welcome no yes. it's not that it's like I love <laughs> I love the idea of going doing something dangerous and ending the podcast and saying, we don't have to do this. We don't have to do this. Let's end it. Podcasts end every day. This one could end by the end of this episode. <laughs> they well, go. Why not put that in the show? Why not break it? Aside from the fact that, of course, we knew that Carrie and Franklin weren't going to survive past episode two. By design, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else listening, by design, we wanted Franklin out at the end of episode two. So we wanted him in in the beginning. And, and what was fun for us was, as Julie said earlier, the blurred line between work, sex. Exactly. Giving and so we came up with the first thing was the vagina commercial. But Carrie in Sex and the City was notoriously provincial in her, her a little conversation. Prudish. A little bit yep. prudish. Why won't you talk about your vagina? Oh, for so many reasons. And to be clear, it's not my vagina. It's everyone's vagina. She yeah. wouldn't really talk the talk that Samantha talked or that Miranda would do dirty talking in bed. And Carrie didn't do it. So for her to be talking right away, first of all, I love the fact that the episode starts with a vagina run. It feels like us Let's to be me. clear, vaginal dryness. Vaginal dryness run. Now, where did that come from? Well, I was listening to a bunch of podcasts to see what could we reflect the way we reflected that they were voicemails from Sarah Silverman's podcast. I listened to a bunch. Everything in the show is built on something. And I would have to say that that 
actual copy is very close to an actual, my readers out there, with a vagina is the actual close line. And I just thought it was funny to start the episode with that and have Carrie react. And you see how cute Franklin is. But the bigger story is when they take the work home. And the discovery of Carrie's episode is, she says to Seema, I'm just not comfortable with that commercial. But the theme of Carrie underneath the show is, I'm just not comfortable with that relationship. The commercial doesn't fit her, and Franklin doesn't fit her. And there's a beautiful moment that has no words where she's just looking at him while As writing he sleeps. Copy. Yeah. And it just says everything. Well, that's whenever Carrie gets near a computer and types and then looks at something. It, it, Sarah Jessica's ability to bring with her all those years of typing and thinking and to see her typing her version of a vagina ad, but really the scenes about her looking at Franklin sound asleep, very cute, charming, asleep. There's nothing negative about the way he's sleeping. He looks good. It's not like we did a snore or like yeah. he's itching drooling. his ass or anything <laughs> drooling. Big fart. We could have put a fart in. It's kind of Prince Charming asleep. And she just thinks. And the audience fills in the blank. In the old series, the other series, in the other series, Sex in the City, she would have told the audience what to think in a voiceover. I couldn't help but wonder right. what's and he what dreaming of and what right. am I dreaming for yes. us? How long would he be in my bed Right, or whatever? Yes. Any number of things. Any number of things. Before we leave Carrie, though, I do want to say uh, I love, you know, the end of their relationship, the end of the podcast and breaking them up in the lobby the way we did, that was also a lot of discussion. What what would their breakup be? How would it look? And there is such um, strength and poise in... I, I'm, I'm pleased that Franklin isn't a victim. Although he's, he's a little he's, hurt. He's, 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 he's a little vulnerable. vulnerable. Depends what you see, Susan. But he's... <laughs> Uh, they're both honest. It's grown up. And I think it's that's, adult. that's what I'm happy to see. Carrie is grown up. And she walks away with a mug. <laughs> which is well, more than a lot of mug. people. <laughs> let's talk about the mug. First of all, podcast ex machina. We ended the podcast because she couldn't, which is an interesting choice. At the end of the Charlotte scene in the real deal that we talked about, she's questioning whether she should do it. Right. And then she goes she leans into it. Right. And she goes and writes a vagina commercial right. that she can, that by she the way, I wrote about. it. And it's really funny. <laughs> uh, if Zoom in on your screen. Um, uh, the Pause. point is, Carrie goes to work and the universe has taken over and it's all destroyed. And she has to then, and this is a very rare Carrie misstep, she starts chasing it. Can we sell it someplace? Oh, you right. said, da, da, right. da. like she's, she's holding now on. holding right. on to the idea of right. this right. thing that she already doubted because it's what was there. And what I love is the contrast in the elevator for the end of the season, episode one, when they're in the elevator and it's exciting and they kiss and the doors close to this scene where they're in the elevator. She's holding the, the mug 
they have nothing to say. And they're standing parallel. And they're parallel. just like American American thinking. Gothic. Yeah. They're both they're thinking. Both and thinking. it feels what? like the longest elevator yeah. ride <laughs> On ever. purpose. Yes. And then the reality is Carrie lands in the lobby and starts pitching, we could keep going. And Franklin is the one who says, I don't think so. So it's like, okay, somebody great. came it to their senses. like him. He like And, and yes. if you watch the episode, again, if you would ever do that, watch Sarah Jessica with that coffee cup. She's a master with props. She has a coffee cup and she has a, a fuchsia purse with a strap. And coming off the elevator, she doesn't want to play the scene holding the cup. So she slings the cup through the purse strap and carries the purse with the cup, Sex in the City, hanging off the side. And the last thing from the directing point of view, which I directed, is when Carrie turns and leaves Franklin, we wanted to show her walking against a sea, a realistic sea of men. And if you look very closely, one man turns and checks her out. But what was exciting for us in the writing room is that last voiceover, I opened up my entire week meaning I opened up my entire life, meaning who knows what's coming next, but this wasn't it. And I choose myself, which is a running theme. Franklin fulfilled his purpose, which was to help move her to the next stage of her, not that she's done mourning, but, but after that year of mourning, and now look who all else might be there. It was a, it feels like a hopeful, um, a hopeful moment. I think it's interesting as Carrie grew, uh, Charlotte had to deal in her storyline with growth, actual growth, her personal growth and the growth of her daughter, uh, Lily. And what we wanted to do with this episode, as a lot of the writers I'm speaking to right now have children, it's fun to create stories that are about watching their children grow and change. And what they need from them still has to change and how they let go. And Charlotte, of course, is the, I would say, the uber maternal character in the show. Miranda has always fought being a mother from the beginning. Even when she was pregnant, it was an accident. So she's not, a, I'm not saying she doesn't love being a mother. It just wasn't a desired road for her and she's adapted. Charlotte's always been somebody who wanted to be a mother. And now we have two children, Rock, who has a genderqueer sensibility now, and Lily, who is now deciding who she wants to be or who the new version of herself. And she was her mother's mini-me. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that is a challenge when you have children, especially daughters, is when they grow away from you in certain ways and acknowledging that new person. And I want to give a special shout out to Samantha Irby because early on in the writer's room, she said, we cannot make Lily the tropey model minority, perfect little Asian girl. And that cracked us open also in terms of what is Lily doing now? Is she? And also what often naturally happens between siblings when one it's like one might be going through a hard time and requiring more of their parents' attention and needing more. And then as soon as that kid you feel like is on stable ground, it's often, I feel like it it was Lily's turn to 
take say, up more pay attention to me. Yeah, take and up more space. And it also comes from the writing, yeah. like what we wanted to do. I remember you talking about Mini-Me, Charlotte's Mini-Me. I remember last year, specifically Julie, coming to me and going, what is Lily wearing? Why is she wearing pearls? What is she doing? She's 14. Why does she have pearls on? And we would go, because she's Charlotte's daughter and she's sort of patterning her. Uh. And it was like, that's the beginning of the unrest. Like, who is Lily? Uh, aside from the, it comes from the writing room, from a re, visceral right, reaction right. to something that you like or don't like. And then you start to think, well, are other people thinking that? And what do we do about it? So we decided to start pushing Lily out of Charlotte's shadow. We started it last season when she went to Carrie's house and took some of Carrie's clothing. So we started going down that road that I'm not going to be you. And then the significant character trait from Lily season one is that she was this brilliant composer, which Kathy, a brilliant pianist, which Kathy Ang happens to be able to play the piano very well. So we thought, what if we did a different type of music that typifies where Lily might think she needs to go? She Carrie's trying on Franklin. Lily's trying on Billie Eilish. <laughs> and just one more thing about her and the song. Let's talk about the evolution of the power of privilege. Park Avenue streets, where do they lead? Stuck in the deep, goddamn, the power of privilege. Should open that second bottle. No reason or rhyme, lost in the climb, living the lie confined. She's singing about being uh, a prisoner of Park Avenue, which in one way sounds funny, but in another way, you see a mother saying, What have I done to my child? Who is this? Do I even understand what she's going through? And then when Lily says, In the deep, goddamn. And Charlotte's (laughs) just like, What? And it's very far from Chopin. And it, and it becomes funny, too, as you see it register for Harry and you see the two of them kind of. And, 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 Anthony, and Anthony says, says your line, who is she? Lily Eilish. Lily Eilish. Okay, and the other thing that's really important about this storyline, the power of privilege became a big moment for us. And I think it's fantastic. But the story really was a child coming to a parent saying, buy me something. And the parents saying, you're on your own. You have a job. You play at ABT. You, you get your own money. Do whatever you want. That's, that's the universal parent. We're not an ATM. You want it, you find it. So Lily calls up a high-end clothing, what would you call it? Respond. Uh, it's, 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 it's a resale shop. Consignment. It's a consignment resale shop. Yeah. And gives away all clothes to buy the electric piano and the recording equipment she needs. So the really, the bigger question to us is, if your parents give you an outfit, is it yours or is it still theirs? So that's the comedy of the thrust of the show, Charlotte's outrage that this Chanel dress that meant something to Charlotte, Lily gave to somebody and she's trying to get it back. And she's clinging to it. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Also, 
the fact that the way she takes this step away from her mom and being this mini-me of Charlotte is, you know, when she first says, I need this keyboard, and they say, we have a Steinway, it's like she could have done it on that piano, but she needed to take this step. It's reminding me, my mom is a piano teacher. I grew up taking classical piano. And every time I thought about quitting, I knew it would break her heart. So instead of quitting, my first stop away from doing what she did was not to play classical. I started learning rags, Scott Joplin. So it was like this, this side ramp, how am I not going to break my mom's heart? And I don't even think it was conscious. But when I saw uh, Kathy sitting at that keyboard in her room, I had this thought of like, oh my God, she's she she's still playing the piano, which is this connection to her mom, but she's doing it in her room on this expensive item. With the door closed. Right. And the interesting thing about giving away the Chanel is really the subtext of the writing, which is you're giving away me. You're giving away the you I gave you. And I'm trying to give you everything. I'm trying to give you classical music. I'm trying to give you fashion. And so Charlotte's... And holding my on values, to these nostalgic my values. things. Well, because my values. Her child my values. I, I, she had worn that dress at her first big recital. Yeah, so I mean, well, that's Charlotte just of. desperate to make a reason yes, to hold on to exactly. anything. As Charlotte says, all the good stuff is already gone. No hope. <laughs> just this one dress. The other big part of the episode from the writing point of view that we always wanted was the fact that Carrie's on the end of the journey with her. Carrie goes to the real deal and the comedy of seeing Charlotte's enemy, Charlotte says you're sleeping with the enemy because she wants the Sonia Richel boots. (laughs) But one of my favorite things that Sarah Jessica did this season is the scene outside the real deal when they're looking in the window and Carrie, and she says, you're ready? Carrie says, I'm ready. You just tell me what to do. You tell me I'll throw that trash can right through through that window. Let's go. Just the idea of that, like, <laughs> r- like making, like, I'll do whatever Scrappy you need Carrie. me to do. I'm, <laughs> but, I got your back, also, ride or die. Back to what you were saying about her with props, the vaudevillian humor of her with her pigeon purse. And oh, I wouldn't to call show that the- a prop. <laughs> <laughs> That's fashion. Yes. It's fashion, but at one point, it's been so long that she puts it on her, her head. head. <laughs> and it's. That's just an example of all the departments coming together. Carrie's in a flight suit. She's going to throw a trash can through the window. There's a New York City uh, hybrid bus behind her. She's ready to go. And she's carrying <laughs> the the purse of the moment, which is a pigeon. But then she takes out bubble gum out of the wing of the pigeon. That's everything. That's Carrie going, Sarah Jessica going, what if I put bubble gum in here? And the other interesting thing about fashion is, of course, it's part of the show, but the connective, the red tape, the yarn that goes from Charlotte to LTW is fashion because LTW is on Vogue's international best dress list. So when Charlotte is downloading and obsessing about the Chanel, LTW says, and I think that's Carl's last collection. That'll be worth a fortune. So somebody is there that participates in the reality of something of value that isn't just because Lily wore it. It's also because it's a thing. And that's the way of you connect Charlotte and LTW. And the other way we connected Charlotte and LTW was the mother-in-law problem. 
Charlotte, having gone through a mother-in-law situation with Bunny that was an oppressive mother-in-law, LTW feels connected to Charlotte because in season one, Charlotte stood up for her in front of her mother-in-law, Eunice. And this episode is really the down, here comes Eunice, basically to show a bigger section of LTW and Herbert Wexley's life and how the mother-in-law affects them. Mm -hmm. So as Charlotte's talking about this, LTW says, get her a drink and I need a drink too because my mother-in-law is here. Mm -hmm. It's a big episode for uh, for the Wexleys yes. because we do a couple of things that I've never seen. Um, do you want to talk about them? I Well, for me, this episode was such a pleasure because we got to dance on the razor's edge between privilege and second-class citizenship, which is the reality for African-Americans in the United States, no matter what heights they reach. And more so than in any other country, race trumps socioeconomic class here. So we also see through the device of they're getting ready for Eunice's arrival and brushing the child's hair and how should a little Black girl's hair be? <laughs> and the a husband saying, hey, my, my mother's not going to like this. And LTW saying, what do you mean? Her hair is beautiful. The different ways that Black people feel you advance. Do you present yourself in a certain way that's quote-unquote polished, or are you your natural self? And everybody's right and everybody's wrong. Uh, and to me, one of the really poignant moments is when they're running to answer the door because Eunice is arriving and little Gabby's hair is perfectly plated, and they run past this Gordon Parks picture of, it's an iconic picture of segregation, and the women are with pressed hair and beautiful little dresses in front of a for colored only sign, and that evokes the world that shaped Eunice. Uh, and so there's so many layers there's in, so many in what things. we're and doing. Every now and then something comes up in the writing room that you will move mountains to keep in because you think, oh, my God. We have to The have idea that. of Herbert and his partner, Lisa, both braiding their child's hair on a time clock, but really the father doing it. That, that to me, was like, I don't care how we get there, but yeah. when you pitched that, I was so like— so at ease. I I've got to like see that. I've never seen well, that. My, my husband was the one who would do our daughter's hair when she was very, very tiny, and, and we had this very argument about, does she get to go to school, preschool, <laughs> with her hair out, or does she have it uh, braided? And I just have never seen a father doing someone's hair, no matter what the race is. I've never seen some that moment— I don't think something. I have either. So I love the fact that it's well, fraught with comedy tension. But and it's the fact that there he is in his suit. This is a highly successful Wall Street banker, and this is what he cares about. And also his respect for his mother, because he knows what she went through. And then, you know, our show is always about that balance between nobility and getting hit with a cream pie. Mm -hmm. So after this very beautiful success <laughs> they run by the Gordon Parks, photograph, they open the door, and then Eunice just says to LTW, I see you just returned from your matinee of The Lion King, because <laughs> she's wearing sort of a tribal blouse. Yes. I mean, it's just, it, that's like, boom, right in the face. And if you notice the right. very end it's of the scene, about the hair. everybody walks away, and LTW has to bring in the luggage like she's the valet for Eunice. <laughs> the the, the daughter-in-law is the grunt. <laughs> 
And um, this is also another big episode for us because we really tried to open up the file a little bit more into who Herbert is. And we have Chris Jackson, of course, so we, it's an amazing actor to play it. But it's like, what's their life? Now, of course, his mother, and she's from a different town in the South. And so what's it like for him in New York City now in the Brooks Brothers suit? Well, it's the reality, again, of Black men. And this comes, this is ripped from the from my own life. My husband wears a suit every single day, and he's an Ivy-educated banker, and he can't get a cap. And what it is to stand on Park Avenue with your child, <laughs> and they're on their way to ballroom dancing class, which is a thing for Upper East Side kids. And it's the child also recognizing, wait a minute, why why aren't the cabs stopping? They stop for my little girlfriend, Claire's dad, because he's white. This is what she's kind of beginning to understand. Uh, and so we see the usually very buttoned down Herbert finally just lose it and bang on the cab. And then he's seen by his mother who's horrified. And I love scenes where everybody's right and everybody's wrong. And in that scene in which his mother confronts him, she is right by saying, don't do not do that. Never let them see you sweat. And she comes from a certain school of thought, that very rigorous school of thought of there are no excuses. You have to be 10 times better. You have to be 10 times more emotionally disciplined. There's no excuse. Uh, and so to be able to put that on screen, and there are people who will disagree with what with what Eunice has to say. I pounded on the hood of a cab one time because that man saw your daughter and I standing there. It's irrelevant. There. We never surrender our dignity. Your grandfather faced the brickbats of Selma without ever loosening his tie. Wexley's win by winning. I also want to say something about the head wrap. She knocks uh, her her daughter-in-law for having her her silk head wrap on <laughs> at night, and she says, "Didn't the Emancipation Proclamation free us from those?" And I think some people will say, "Oh my God, you know what a self-loathing black woman!" But uh, <laughs> or funny, yes, uh, huh? there's monster. Uh, there was something called the Tignol Laws in the 18th century in uh, New Orleans because so many of the mixed race women were indistinguishable from white women, the government, the Spanish government, forced them to all wear head wraps so that they were identified. So there is an oppressive origin of it. Then Black people would use it and say, fine, I'm just going to make it more decorative and prettier. And of course, in the 60s and 70s, it came back as a, a big political fashion statement, and it's very in now, and there are videos on how to tie your tignol. But for that woman, seeing that is very triggering because it's we, we have worked to get away from that and to be able to be more dignified in her eyes. So Yeah, LTW, it's a very big scene and it's very special and the actors are great, but it's a scene I've never seen. So it's definitely in just like that. But also to get back to the, uh, it's it's like, it looks like it's going one way and then it's another. Like the SEMA story is very interesting because we put red flags in the show. Red flags is a classic thing when you're single. People always say, look for the red flags. What are the red flags? What are the red flags? So what we wanted to investigate with this phenomenally successful, powerful, stylish woman, Seema, is does she create obstacles in order to get out? 
And because she's new to Carrie, you have that exciting new frontier of somebody else who doesn't know your pattern, who you can actually say, much like Charlotte is looking at Lily and that's a mirror, Seema can look at Carrie and say, what do you think? I mean, the comedy construct was that we found that her hairdresser said, no wonder you're still alone. And that nightmare of that and hairdressers telling you the truth that they shouldn't. And, and the idea that it throws her so much means she's hit by it. Because mm-hmm. maybe it is true. Maybe she but is afraid of intimacy. We're most and, hurt or enraged if we fear there's some truth under the... But there's also a way that very strong women, we are also commitment folks, and we avoid commitment by pushing away whoever is really available. And so I think she has to reckon with that. What does that mean? Well, you know, you say, oh, I I really want to be in a relationship, but you're with the guy on the motorcycle who's got five different women in different towns, as opposed to the person who's there saying... I'm here and I care about you. And so I think that it's that moment for her is, is that true? Am I always, the minute someone is really putting themselves forward, do I push them away? Also, I believe that Seema, she's tough. Like, I think she sends out a message to the world of, I'm, uh, I'm in charge, I'm confident, don't come near me with a critique and it's her hairdresser who's the only one who can get in there and and gets under her skin. Because he sees her roots. Yeah. But I'm bummed. The interesting thing, too, about it all is that we created another duality. The audience can decide. Is he, as she says, a mooch based on telling his wife to pick up the check in episode one? Or is she thinking, eh, I don't know. And we leaned on the side of, uh, she's right. (laughs) She's right and everybody else is wrong. But what's interesting in the Seema story is she bails on herself. She decides the hairdresser's right. She goes back. She's willing to be wrong, I guess, would be the the growth. She's willing to be wrong. She's willing to take another look. So she comes back in with that very hilarious bad blow from Easy Blow, Elisa. (laughs) Elisa, we have to name the place Easy Easy Blow on 68th Street. (laughs) And then she says, you were right. I took it too personally. And very un- sympathetically, she says, do you want this tequila or not? And then she goes back with him and he asks her to invest uh, money. And then she goes, "Yeah, no. he was wrong, <laughs> I was right. This is one of these story points that Elisa really went to the mat for. You never know <laughs> when something is going to strike Elisa in her gut. But the blowout storyline was uh, was very it's, important. It's tricky on a show where everybody's hair Looks is great. always right. perfect. Oh, yeah. The level um, of bad to that yes. blowout was discussed yes. at length. Yes. Shots. Back and forth. Is this too much? Is this too little? I said, it's not funny. It's funny. It was great. And the actors were all great. And, you know, Sarita is a dream is so game. Oh uh, everybody's so game. And then, you know, it's a, it's kind of, you know, New York and it's very inside. And then you go to the outside. That is L.A. The idea of Miranda in California, the beginning of the actual realization for the audience that they're going to see this sitcom pilot called Che Pasa for Che, and that Miranda is 
now passed the first wave of delirium honeymoon and now has nothing to do. Because Che's gone to work. I just want to say, Miranda in L.A., first of all, just talking about those episodes with Miranda in L.A., I don't know if you noticed this, but when we were in the writer's room back back at the very beginning of hatching the season— I felt like I was breaking out in hives, like thinking about how, why did we need her to be there for three episodes? I was like, I I felt physically uncomfortable having her there. Now, I will point out, Elise and I live in New York, as does Susan, happily, and we happened to be out in L.A. for just a couple weeks with Michael out in the glories of L.A. with the sun. Writing. Writing. sitting around We weren't just having margaritas, (laughs) although we did a few of those. But I realized... Me outside of New York with no stressors, like none of my usual stressors, the city, the stress, the my kids, but then to have Miranda out there without her usual stressors was such a wild ride. I felt like we could have Miranda in L.A. and everybody else in New York knowing that we were going to connect them again through the serial killer red yarn tape of I lost my phone, Carrie, what's Chase phone number, et cetera. Well, and the beauty also of seeing her in AA. Yeah, that was important. Oh, yeah. Very, very important and moment. And we, that, that didn't, we didn't arrive at that lightly either. I mean, we, 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 Right. Really pondered. It was like, do the, we uh, reference it? Do we need to see yes. it? And and you figured out we did. First, we were going to see it, then we weren't. And then it was like, no, I think we need to see it. I mean, the idea of Miranda's drinking problem in the first season was dramatic. And the show was so big, we really couldn't even get she was going through so much tumult. Yes. We couldn't, it, it, we couldn't even like get ten, another thought about I'm an alcoholic yes. in the show. Uh, she said, I quit and all that. So the idea is when you go to L.A. and you have nothing to do except sit with yourself when Che's not working with Tony Danza, who was amazing in the show. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? He's the boss. <laughs> you write Tony Danza and then you get Tony Danza. Yep. And he's amazing because, you know, they're really, who else are we going to get to 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 actually represent the very best of sitcom history? And he's sexy and funny and game. So the idea that Tony Danza is in the show and that Miranda, when Che's gone, has to sit and think and they have time Michael, to go. can we talk about the origin of the losing one's phone on the beach story. Yeah, yeah. So Miranda goes to the beach and is cleaning up and loses her phone. Once again, based on everything that happens in reality, I went to Santa Barbara and I was walking down the beach with my friend and they were throwing throwing a ball and I had sweatpants on and throwing a ball to their dog. Oh, <laughs> bending down, picking up the ball. Oh, it's only time to throw a ball <laughs> up and down the beach. <laughs> then I get back to their house and I got no phone. <laughs> my phone's gone. And then the next hour and a half, I'm scouring the beach. Sidebar, here comes a name drop. Up comes Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> And his kid, and, I'm, and he's like, what's up, man? I'm like, I left my phone, Ashton Kutcher. And he was like, bummer. The panic of trying to find a phone on the beach, knowing that the tide could have come in, I could be just missing it. But really, that was the reality of how you could lose a phone. But the story point is, 
how you could lose yourself, mm-hmm. which Miranda is beginning to worry about. Mm-hmm. She's lost her identity and she doesn't even know Che's phone number, which is our tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and the idea that Cynthia is so game and going through all that seaweed, oh and God. I even put that dead put dead crabs in there so she would scream. But that whole journey of like the worst going from sun and fun to just who am I? Who am I? And and by the way, she's then picked up by someone she discovers is Chase. For well, I, her, her, her husband. husband. Not, but it's like you don't know who who they are. We like the idea of further exploring the edge of Chase sexuality, meaning they've been with men, they've been with women, they've Bisexual. been with Lyle. Yeah. Now they're with Miranda. So really, the episode was about the beginning of Miranda realizing, who is this that I'm with, and who am I? And where do I fit in here? You open this by saying, it's the, the real deal. In relationships, What what is the real deal? And this is the episode in which Naya realizes this relationship is is not the real deal for her anymore. And we, With her husband. we wanted, we felt like we wanted to do justice to Andre Rashad and not just have him be an off-screen character this season. But this went through the greatest iterations, I must say, yes, or the most many. iterations, <laughs> because there was a whole, mm, she yes. came out of the water because she's right, a surfer. Right. Oh. <laughs> and he was waiting for her. There were many. He was and back then, in town, right. Uh, and right, then we fell was, upon and then we decided to do this very operatic moment for her when she's well he says the thing we decided she's still he has holding to push on to her. hope she's still holding on to hope we acknowledge that she called him drunk and as she says a little crazy <laughs> uh, the night the episode before and he basically says uh, she says come on you were going to i could smell the sex through the phone and he says nothing happened yet and then she says, yet. And he said, do you want it to? And sometimes I want, but mostly I want us to work out how surrogate. Which After, is years of and discussion. And that was the trigger. <laughs> that was the slowly I turn. That was the that mind was the- that they stepped on in the minefield. <laughs> so that we get to have this scene where a outraged Naya is in the Andre Man Cave music room, <laughs> ridiculing and throwing away Everything. Everything everything about him in a I, in a in a fit at the same time Miranda's dumping and cleaning up the beach Naya's cleaning up her life I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair I'm deandreifying my life Oh my life. god and the 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 Nubian <laughs> hair weave I mean that's so Susan Susan wrote all these impossible things for the prop department and then they have and to they go and die. make the Nubian hair weave with Korean <laughs> hair from a roommate art thing I mean there were so many and then when you see Karen pick it up and then do that line <laughs> how hard that line is to say and she just keeps going. I mean, yeah, Note it was perfect. It was a way of us finally moving Naya away from Andre Rashad and for real. For real. real. And really deal. throwing away <laughs> the idea that I'm going to wait anymore in this story arc for a man who wants me to have a baby. I'm done. That was the whole thrust of the second season 
who's Naya going to be? Because what we're really shooting towards is we realized we had the absolute potential, depending on what we did with the rest of the season, to have five single, single characters. Women, yeah. Which or was five both, characters not married. It yeah. was both. It was almost shocking when we figured it out. It was thrilling and scary. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, yeah. they're all single. And how that happens, whether they become single or stay single, that's all in the episodes coming. Thanks for listening to the second episode of And Just Like That, The Writer's Room. Come back next week when we will discuss episode three, named Chapter Three. Stream new episodes of And Just Like That Season Two only on Max. Listen to new episodes of the podcast right after the new episodes of the show. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And Just Like That, The Writer's Room is produced by Neon Hum Media for Max. At Neon Hum, Cher Morris is the executive producer. Joanna Clay is the lead producer. Sammy Allison is our head of production. Zoe Culkin is our associate producer. Sam Baer is our engineer. That's it for the show. Thank you for listening. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.